Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. I want to read verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12 from Hebrews 11. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Well, verse 11 introduces the first woman in this list of heroes. And Sarah should be marked as one of our heroes of the faith, a woman of God. If Abraham is the father of faith, we are introduced to the mother of faith, someone to look up to and to grow by understanding her testimony and her life. It's the first of four mentions of women in this list of Individuals from the Bible, from the story of the Bible, verse 23, Pharaoh's daughter who hid Moses is mentioned. Moses is a little baby. And then verse 34, 31, Rahab who welcomed the spies, verse 35. And then there's the generic women who received back their dead by resurrection. And there are Old Testament stories and accounts of them. So we're going to save them for later, but this morning is to learn about Sarah. And I don't want this to seem like a Mother's Day message, but I really do want to take a bit of a, an introduction and talk about women in church and in church life. There's a lot of discussion. There's controversy in the church today, and I don't mean just... Uh, in, intermural controversy between liberals and conservatives. There's a lot of intramural um, controversy and debate within the church, within the conservative um, thinkers. But as I talk about women in ministry, my, my goal is to promote it. My heart's desire is for you women to flourish at church and for you to to fly in your giftedness here. And I think much of the controversy and debates also does something negative to that. And I think just looking more at the scripture and saying, how am I supposed to be used of God in church, in church life, in my giftedness? For the glory of Christ is what launches you in ministry. We need to look at ladies like Sarah and say, this is a model. This is an example of, of bold faith. Someone who believed God's promise and was a vehicle and a vessel to the fulfillment of that in God's sovereignty and glory. Women in scripture are highly esteemed, highly loved, welcomed. The church should be one of the safest place, if not the safest place on earth for a woman in terms of how she serves and how she feels about her identity in life. It's really a complete transparency in the gift mix that's given in scripture for women as, as is given also for men. There is a equal 
spirituality in terms of the inheritance that awaits you women, that awaits us men and children as well who are believers. There's a a zeal and passion that women should enjoy in their faith relationship with the Lord directly with Christ himself, the same access that we all have in the body of Christ. It's a joy to serve and In the church, there has been sort of an apologizing approach to how women have been treated, and I'm sure there is warrant for that. But my approach this morning is to just try to open the scripture and look clearly and honestly and openly at women serving in the church. I want to begin with one of the most controversial verses that is found in 1 Timothy 2. A lot is kind of ground zero here with this verse, 1 Timothy 2.12. It causes some confusion, I think. But the context of 1 Timothy is just basically laying out order and and direction for how church life um, goes. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then here's the controversial verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse 12, it it speaks to women in a role um, of teaching or exercising authority, and it's just saying that that isn't permitted. And here at Anchorage Grace Church, we... Um, see the role of elder and overseer and pastor as a, a role for men because of that verse. Also, First Timothy 3, 1, it says, this saying is trustworthy, and this is the qualifications for an overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So we see it as male And then if you go to the list in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And it goes down to verse 11, speaking of the qualifications of a deacon, it says there are wives. We actually take this as women. The word there is not in the original um, Greek. It just says women, gunekos, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. We have women deacons here like Phoebe. So we have we have men who are deacons who are designated in the office of deacon and who serve and are set apart in their way. And we have women who like Phoebe serve and, and give and they're uniquely designated and affirmed in that qualification and ministry. So that's how our polity is arranged. I just think it's important to understand that the pastoral epistles are a how-to manual. I mean, there is a context. There, there were dynamics that were happening in the time of Ephesus when Paul gave Timothy the charge to take over the church. But First and Second Timothy is really a general instruction manual for how 
church life should be conducted, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm just showing you how you're supposed to behave here, how church life is supposed to be. The issue of creation is uh, the groundwork for um, this understanding of women not being in the lead. The leadership role of an elder is to protect and defend the doctrine of the church and to communicate authoritatively with the word of God from the word of God. And this role and responsibility is grounded in creation. If you look back at 1 Timothy 2, it says, "For for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And that word deceived there in verse 14 is wholly deceived and became a transgressor. You remember the account in Genesis 3 where the serpent came into the garden and wholly deceived Eve and tempted her in that way. And that's not to say men cannot be tempted, but the point of this passage is talking about how Adam, who was standing right by Eve, was completely passive in his role. Instead of being in the lead, instead of interacting, instead of working in his one flesh relationship with Eve in that moment, he just sat by idly in passivity. So instead of this being a rebuke really on women, this is an abdication of men not stepping up and leading. Oftentimes there is this sort of sheepishness within the church and men need to look at scripture and say, I want to lead if I'm called as I'm called to do that headship should not be a threat Christ is called uh, the head of the church Colossians 118 but he's also a submissive within the role his role within the trinity so as a leader and as a head of the church he's also working in subordinationism 1 Corinthians 11:3 but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. You know, in every case in the New Testament, when we talk about, when the Bible talks about the fall, who's held responsible? Is Eve mentioned there? Well, Adam is, Adam is. Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is the one who is held responsible as the leader in their one flesh relationship. So the role of uh, preaching and exercising authority, I just, I see it clearly in scripture as, as male, but does that in any way take away what a woman is supposed to be and do within the church practically and powerfully. And I say, no, not at all. Do you have to be perfect to be used of God as a woman? Absolutely not. We're going to learn all about Sarah. (laughs) She was anything but perfect, but she is a remarkable woman of God. And she is in the, really the the company of many, many women in scripture that play impactful, powerful roles. You remember, well, Eve plays a role and, and is extremely powerful as a, I believe a woman of God who God forgave for her sin and created the, you know, the skin sacrifice for Adam and Eve. You have Deborah, a prophetess, Rahab, um, you have Hannah, 
the mother of Samuel, Ruth, Esther, Anna. Do you remember her in the gospel account? It was a woman of God able to see Jesus as he was newly born. She was prophesying over him. Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene. Remember the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, Lydia, and then Phoebe. These are just some of the examples in scripture of women. I read earlier the account of Mary um, and how she was spoken to, to, to bear Jesus. And I didn't read her Magnificat, but look there, Luke chapter one, verse, verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Listen to the theology here that she understands. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to those offspring forever. She didn't just make that up, okay? When she prayed that, when that bursted forth from her heart in gratitude, that came from her understanding in depth and breadth theology. Women, you are responsible to know truth, to understand the word of God. Men, you should be, be promoting that in the life of your spouse or friendships. You should, because women need to be strong in faith. Titus 2 speaks of older women discipling younger women, showing them the way of how to put up with us guys in the household, right? How to raise children. One preacher wisely said a long time ago, I'll never forget when I was single and trying to understand who I was going to marry and praying about that. And, and he said, you know, whoever you marry and end up with will predominantly be the discipler in the home of your children. Never forgot that. And that was so powerful to me because it, it has been true. It plays out that way. Do you remember Aquila and Priscilla, their ministry together, partnering Acts 18, 24, they came to Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to, who came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew only the baptism of John. So he was limited in his knowledge of what he knew up to that point. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. So they come as partners here. They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Don't be intimidated by the scripture. Just as men are discipling men, women are to be discipling women. And that should be happening all the time in this church and wherever you go to church. It's powerful word ministry that should be happening. And just because uh, women are not designated for the preaching role, that doesn't eliminate the teaching gift and the spiritual privileges that are found in biblical womanhood. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male 
and female, for you are all one in Christ. Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it's not a matter of gifting. It's a matter of use and where you use this gift. Women are to be be listened to in the home. Single women should be undistracted in their stewardship and their freedom to minister the word of God and the truth throughout the church. Young, old, married, single, all the above. If you're married to an unbeliever, you're to win them without a word with your testimony. You're supposed to stick in, in that house, in that environment. Remember Phoebe, she was a crusader taking the book of Romans to Rome, a servant, a a deaconess at the church of century that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way of the saints. That reminds me of women missionaries that are bold, who give their whole lives to the word of God and to ministry. Think of Elizabeth Elliot. Think of how she ministered in that tribe that had killed her husband and her colleagues and friends. I was talking to my daughter about this this week, Jim Elliott, and really the testimony of his life and faithfulness and boldness with the word of God is carried out through Elizabeth's life, ministry, and boldness with the word of God. And actually, one of the Aka Indians who was a, an executioner of Jim came to faith in Christ, I think after his death, obviously, but under Elizabeth's um, sort of ministry and missions ministry there. And he sort of became a a kind of spiritual parent and father to Jim and Elizabeth's children. It's amazing to think about the word of God and its ministry. There's a lot to be said here, a lot to, to unpack. And I know there's a lot... Um, of swirl and talk about this, but I really think it is so important to esteem women as the Bible esteems women. Luke 8, 1 to, 7, 1 to 3 talks about this. Mary Magdalene, who had just, I believe it's Mary Magdalene, who had just anointed Christ's feet at Simon the Pharisee's, in Simon the Pharisee's home, wetting his feet with tears, wiping with ointment, and all of that is happening. And Jesus is defending this woman of God, Luke seven forty seven. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But she who is forgiven little, or he who is forgiven little, loves little. This woman was gushing with love for Christ, and Christ welcomed that. In that culture, for the woman who had the issue of blood, which would be outside of the ceremonial law to touch Um, the hem of his garment and him not to rebuke her, but to heal her power has come for me. And he's affirming her. He's affirming, he's raising the little girl from death, rushing to the aid of that little girl, raising um, the, the widow's son at Nain. I mean, there are all kinds of stories. Jesus, the first person he speaks to when he's raised from death in the garden tomb, I believe is Mary Magdalene, a woman who was demon possessed but now saved. These are just stories. Luke 8, again, as I was mentioning before, it says that women were with Jesus, not just the 12, but verse 2, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Why, why are these mentions here? And Susanna and others, many others who provided for them out of their means. 
These are the mothers and sisters within the church, 1 Timothy 5, that we're to treat as sisters in all purity. Remember, I remember seeing this more recently um, than uh, sort of surprisingly recently from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, you remember in the upper room, the 120 are gathered together. Remember that? Yeah, I used to just think, well, it's 120 leaders, right? And who are, who are the initiators of the church. Well, you have this, this, this group, this family that is waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. And there's a specific, there's specificity to who the Spirit of God, um, you know, lighted upon. And it says, Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's who was there praying together, worshiping together, seeking the Lord together. There is a leadership by example that these women of God make. There's a aggressiveness as John Piper put it. And he did a lot um, in the early nineties on biblical manhood and womanhood with Wayne Grudem. And I've read through a lot of that, but he said, women need to have heads full of theology and backbones of steel. And I think that's true. Life is hard. You need the truth. You can't just sit back. You, you have to fill your heart and mind with the word of God. We have no guarantees in this life. And we need to win people to Christ with the truth and be in teaching ministries that are according to the Bible, but doing so aggressively. So that brings us to Sarah. Is Sarah... Um, the paragon of all spiritual virtue. Why is she raised up? Why is she someone that we're to look up to? Is it because of her perfect, obedient life? Well, actually, this is to the contrary. She had a very checkered life and history. We learned a lot um, building up to this last week about Abraham. And he was Abram and then named Abraham. We're going to see that. And this is Sarai, who was renamed by God, Sarah. She's a hero of the faith. Why? First of all, she's a hero because she's a sinner. She's a sinner. You'll understand what I mean by that. Not affirming sin, but she's a normal, regular person who's born sinful, just like you and me. Sarah's life, she begins as a 60, uh, within the account of scripture, we we find her as a 65-year-old. Abraham is 75. They're practical nomads. They were raised in Ur, the Chaldeans, um, which is a society which is now southern Iraq, up the Fertile Crescent in your mind's eye in a uh, Middle Eastern map. And it's an area that was between the Tigris and Euphrates. It's pre-flood where I think the Garden of Eden was. And so they were there raised in a cosmopolitan societal um, intellectual environment. But um, hearing from God, they left with their family under Terah, Abram's father. They, They left as a party in a group nomadically to go towards the the promised land. They're not completely young. They're nomads in modern retirement age. And Sarah is very, very beautiful. She's very beautiful. She's so beautiful that her husband, Abram, is fearing that the most powerful leader in Egypt, Pharaoh, is going to demand of her to be part of her harem. And he does. We'll learn of that later. But they were contemporaries of Job in this, this post-flood, but, but you know, early, early time in antiquity. 
They were paganized, as we learned, Joshua 24, their father, Terah, the father of Abraham, um, is sort of a heritage here. It says, Joshua 24, 2, they served other gods. They were 140 miles from the Tower of Babel, and they left and then ultimately settled 350 miles up the Fertile Crescent, 350 miles away from the promised land of Canaan, they settled in Haran, Genesis eleven thirty one says. Genesis 12, if you want to turn there, it speaks of this promise where God spoke directly to Abram and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You harmonize that with uh, the story uh, where Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin and he says that God spoke directly to Abram in Canaan, but he also speaks to him again in Haran. But the subplot here is Sarah. And Sarah is in a, just a difficult spot. She's barren. She's struggling in ways that many have struggled where they are longing for something in particular here, longing for a child and is barren. Bible says in Genesis eleven thirty, Sarai was barren and she had no child. What happens here as the story goes and unfolds is you have this dominant intervening life altering promise that's given directly by God. And it's given over and over and over again through the Genesis account directly to Abram that he's going to make a great nation. Abram, you are the channel through which this Old Testament gospel blessing is going to come to the nations. You are the father of faith and you're through your loins, through your lineage, this is going to happen. And yet you have Sarai who's getting older and older and older going through phase and the next phase and the next phase. And she's barren trying to understand these things. In Genesis 12, 30, 11, 32, we have um, Terah's death account. Their party sojourned throughout Canaan. Um, and Genesis 12, 10, though, says that though they were there for several years and they were nomadic, sort of um, staking out God's promised land, um, there was a famine in the land. It providentially pushed them to southern Egypt, where Abraham, knowing Sarah was very beautiful, was fearing that Pharaoh would kill him to have her. So he decides to pass her off as a sister. Why do I bring this up? Is this Abram's sin? Well, I want to make the case that the Bible is clarifying that Sarai was complicit in this sin. Genesis 12 10, there was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. You see the providence of God, verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Yeah, verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. And I believe that, you know, Sarai was protected from Pharaoh and his heart and his house with great plagues because Sarai, Abram's wife. So, uh, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not say, why did you say she is my sister? So it goes on from there in Genesis 15, the, the, story picks up again with Abram and Sarai and 
the Lord restates his promise to Abraham again. Uh, It's after these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. And then verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is an Egyptian. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then he says, he takes him outside, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Genesis fifteen twelve, Abram was put into a deep sleep. It's the same word for you, that was used for Adam when he was put to sleep, when Eve was taken from his side and created from his rib. There's a prophecy and prediction of what's going to happen. The, you know, this prophecy will be fulfilled. Genesis fifteen thirteen speaks of how um, the Israelites or the offspring of Abram were going to be in captivity, afflicted for 400 years. And that was fulfilled in specificity. This is a long-term promise that's being played out that Abram is needing to latch onto, that he's needing to lead his wife to see. You see some passivity in Abram. Hey, lie, just say I'm your sister because we're half brother and half sister. And that's how things were back then. But anyway, it's a lie. And this fed into Sarah's complicity and her own sin, Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no child. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. She becomes impetuous. Sarai wants to take matters into her own hands to see this thing fulfilled. She's hearing of the promise of God over and over again, God's intervention, but she's struggling. She meets her struggling with raw pragmatism. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Or Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This is adultery. This is immorality. This is against God's original design of marriage. This is um, a form of bigamy. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt at her mistress. So there's a contemptuous um, dynamic between Hagar, between Sarai. And Sarai basically pronounces a curse on her husband for what Sarai had done and what Abram had followed. You see the role reversal here. Things were flipped on its head. This is when things become vulnerable spiritually. Men being passive and women taking matters and fill into their own hands, filling a void that should not be there in the first place. Verse five, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Wow. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. So now he's not just passive. He's aggressive here, right? Hey, Hagar's in your power. Do with her as you will. 
do to her as you please. He's giving Sarai permission to be abusive. And she was, Sarai dealt harshly with her, whatever that means. And she fled from her. What's the fallout? fallout? Sarai and Hagar are dysfunctional. There's dysfunctionality in, you know, on steroids between Abram and Sarai. There's an enraged outburst of anger. And then Proverbs 31, 21 is completely fulfilled under three things. The earth trembles under four. It cannot bear up a slave when he becomes a king and a fool when he is filled with food An unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she despises her mistress. So what's the fallout? Ishmael is born. A race is born. There's been racial tension within the Middle East ever since. There's been false religions that have propped up and cropped up through all of that apostasy, threat, danger. Things that we feel today are all traced back to these sins. Sin of bitterness, sin of longing for something that isn't happening in this person's timetable or time frame. This is Sarah, an inability to conceive. It grew as despair in her heart. But with all of the despairing that she was going through, God's grace was there to continue to reiterate the promise. She lived in Canaan for 24 years, and the Lord once again renews his covenant with Abraham, now 99 years old. Genesis 17, 1 to 8, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall I call you Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. The word Abraham. Going from Abram to Abraham means there is an unlimited influence now to the nations. It's also going to change Sarai's name to Sarah. Sarai means my princess, which is specific to the people of God. And Sarah means princess. There's that unlimiting influence as a mother of faith that is going to be put on her as well. Abram fell on his face. Behold, my covenant is established. Look at verse six. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will, I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. So Canaan is brought up again, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, the father of nations. But look at, look at Genesis 17. As for Sarai, your wife, we will call her name Sarah. Verse 16, I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. Look how specific this is. And she is 90. Will bless her and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. It's dynamic. What does Abraham do at this point? Listen, he's incredulous, but he's believing what God is saying. 
He's grasping the fact that this isn't an allegorical dynamic. This isn't sort of some kind of picture of something that's going to happen another way. He's seeing himself as a very, very old man. And this is going to happen with a very, very old woman. And he laughs. Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He's incredulous, but he's going, this is going to happen. What about, what about Sarah? She's raised a pagan unbeliever, complicit, lying twice. She's going to lie again um, regarding the king Abimelech um, and Negev, giving um, her husband to bigamy, sexual immorality. She's disrespectful, pronouncing curses. She's uh, embittered. She's jealous, and she's abusive to Hagar. Who is Sarah? Sarah is someone who is manifesting all the same sins that we have in our hearts, whether they have manifested themselves at these levels or not. We're all this sinful person. But there's one difference between a person with this sin problem and Sarah and anyone who's a Christian. It's faith. Faith is the one distinguishing difference. It's what everyone must do. It's the one thing that she did do, which is believe. Sometimes you have to see how bad you really, really are to see how good God really, really is. You have to see how unsatisfying sin really, really is, how vacuous, how empty, how guilt striking sin is, how, how hopeless sin is. The wide road leads to destruction. It's, it's faith in God where you can go. And God over and over and over again as the hound of heaven said, no, this is the blessing. This is the promise. It's going to happen specifically through you. I'm showing you, Abraham. I'm showing you, Sarah. Believe, believe, believe. That's what turns everything. Belief. Sarah was a believer. She was a sinner. Point one. That was point one. Point two, she's a believer. Hebrews 11, 11, this is what makes her a hero of the faith. Why is she a hero of the faith? Because of, she's this awesome individual. She believed. Look at, well, just think about and maybe look back at Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. This verse is an amazing Verse in that it is very succinctly tying together God's sovereignty. He's going to fulfill his promise, but it's wedded within Sarah's faith. God waits for us to believe within his plan. Now he knows where we're going to believe. He energizes us and brings us to life spiritually. So we believe, but there's this human responsibility component and element where God gets glory. He, the, as the story is unfolding, Sarah is trying to take matters in her own hands. She's doing wrong. She's sinning. And then something happens and she expresses faith and believes. How big was her faith? This stubborn, struggling woman who was weak in faith, but she exercised a mustard seed of faith to unspeakable ends. Just a tiny bit of faith, an infinitesimally small little piece of faith. Where is that found? Look at Genesis 18. This is where it is. 
The Lord visits Abraham with angels, Genesis 18, 1 to 3, by the oaks of Mamre. He sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men. One of them is the Lord, I believe a Christophany, a literal visitation of Christ in the Old Testament with fellow angels. He saw them. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He said, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This is like the two on the road to Emmaus. Please stay. Please eat. Please hang out. I want a fellowship with you. Heaven has come down. Abraham shows hospitality. He runs quickly to Sarah, says, quick, you know, basically get flour, knead it, you know, knead the bread and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. So he's, he's pulling this all together. And so Sarah's in earshot and, and Abraham is talking to the angels and to, I believe, the Lord And they said, where is Sarah, your wife? Where is she? I mean, we see all this food, but where is she? She's in the tent, so she's she's close by. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you. It's as if the Lord wanted to make sure that she was in earshot, right? To hear this promise one more time, another time. That's what God does for us. He wants you to hear it one more time. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. back, Back to verse Ten, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Sarah was obviously in earshot. She was hearing the pro- promise, and it elicited a response. And remember, it's the same response as her husband had. It's laughter. She's incredulous, but she's grasping. She's climbing for the reality of this promise. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old. Advanced in years, the way of woman, women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. She's laughing inside. She didn't want to be overheard. This is just her. <laughs> it's like reading a political cartoon. You know, you don't always laugh out loud. It's just that, <laughs> just inside. I don't get most of them, but anyway, it's all right. So Sarah laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Look at verse 15. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh. Now she's not denying the promise. Be clear on that. She's exercising faith. What kind of faith? Incredulousness. Really? So at this stage in my life, this is where I'm going to find satisfaction? Fulfillment? She's laughing inside, denying it, playing games with the Lord who's omniscient, who saw the laugh. She says, I did not laugh. She said that for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. He's saying, I saw it. Even mixed with your laughter, I saw that faith. I saw it. I know what's going on. That's her faith. That's what Hebrews 11, 11 is describing as faith. She got it. This is really going to happen. I can't believe it, but I believe it. That's how much faith we have to have. That's what it means to be a hero of faith, to be a sinner, but an actual believer, to be like Mary, the mother of Jesus, pondering all these things in her heart. Remember, she was Luke 2, 19. I can't believe it. I'm going to have a baby. 
Sarah knew she was dealing directly with the Lord. She was mingled with dread, guilt, fear, and joy. I think that's a good list because that that describes us, right? That's our experience in faith. That's real faith. Hebrews 11, 12 tells us what what happens when we believe. Therefore, from one man, him him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We're the descendants. We're the stars. We're the grains of sand. This is the fulfillment of faith. This is the nomad's journey that we're invited to participate in within the church together. What are we all about? What are we doing? Well, we are sinners that are that bad, redeemed by one thing, by believing, by believing, by believing in the gospel. Whether you're a man who's as good as dead, Hebrews eleven twelve, or a woman who is worn out, Genesis eighteen twelve, we believe, we believe, right? We believe, we believe in the Lord Jesus. We believe we're saved. We live by faith, men and women together in the church, living, exercising our gifts, just like Sarah, just like Abraham, imperfect. God is perfect, but we live by faith in him.